Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. The partially potty trained edition. <laughs> yes, it's been a long few days of bodily fluids <laughs> everywhere. We've been trying to potty train our firstborn son, Silas. It's a, it's a bit of an up and down kind of journey. And by up and down, I mean you're going up and down cleaning up human waste from all around your house. <laughs> I feel like it's hard to put into words how demoralizing it is to clean up 17 different instances of bodily fluids that have been dispensed throughout your household. Yeah, and when you say 17, that wasn't just in one day. So he is getting better. He's catching on. Uh, he's understanding the process. But it's not as overnight as I had hoped for. <laughs> it's still head knowledge for him. It's not heart knowledge. There you go. And hand knowledge. There you go. I am so tired. <laughs> wow, my life. Uh, but you know, even more than that, there is a problem within the church that has been sweeping through evangelicalism and defecating all over the American church. I was wondering how you were going to tie those two things together. Uh, and then I realized how you did it. Yeah. I don't know if it was your best, but it was a good lead-in. It's a segue. Good it's job. a segue. Good work. But what is this thing that is defecating all over the American church? I bet you're going to tell us. Wokeism. And so there's a considerable number of people within evangelicalism that think wokeism is uh, something that's going to destroy us. And so they have online platforms that are basically dedicated to exposing wokeism for what it is and debunking it with, quote-unquote, biblical truth. Recently, there was even an entire conference about it called Wokeness and the Gospel, which was led, among others, by Owen Schron. And, you know, it's actually funny. I actually wrote a blog post about is wokeness a danger to the church back in January? Yeah, it was a while ago. It might have been January of last year, where it was basically the the beginning of when this term was reaching a cultural inflection point. And I just kind of thought the whole argument that it was going to bring down the church at that point, which was just kind of a small discussion at that point, was kind of silly. And I would actually go back and probably update that blog now if I went to go back and read it. Um, and maybe I will at some point, but I couldn't have predicted how much of a conversation or how much this conversation around wokeness would have accelerated yeah. in the past year or so, mm-hmm. going from uh, a word that was used mainly in the black community to as a positive thing, like someone, hey, stay woke, mm-hmm. stay, right. wo- stay awake, basically, to like this huge blanket term for basically anything progressive. And it's something that was so mainstream that it's become a conversation within the church itself. And that conversation, unfortunately, sounds very similar to the conservative conversation happening even outside of the church itself. Yeah, and it is interesting that a phrase, stay woke, that was used mostly in the black community as of a couple years ago, is now plastered on the books, written by white conservatives, basically Mm. using it as a derogative and yeah. so it's an interesting turn of events, but you recently had a run-in with uh, the woke police in the Twitterverse, right? <laughs> the woke police. Yes. I had run across a Twitter thread and 
of course, when Twitter you, threads are always so uplifting. They are. And when you start reading, you know, whatever popped up into your feed, of course you need to look at the sub threads and like, and you, you end up down this rabbit hole and you're on someone else's Twitter account that you've never heard of before because you're following tweet after tweet and repost and comments and yeah. So that's. Yeah, and I, then you I find yourself down. like on the page of someone who's like wearing a fedora, and their Twitter is like reformed and angry. Yes, is like their Twitter handle, and you're like, <laughs> "How did I get here?" Yeah. It's like four o'clock in the morning. I, mean, I don't even know who this person. Who are you? You have two people following you. But Am now I I'm one of them now. But, but now I'm like reading yes. all their retweets. Yes. So I recently found myself down one of those rabbit holes, and I ended up looking at an account by Woke Preacher Clips, which I had never heard of before, but it was a retweet upon a retweet upon a retweet, and I found this account, Woke Preacher Clips. And at first look, it's kind of confusing what the account is, and even as I was looking at the comments, there were a lot of people who were excited about the clip that was being posted by this account and they were saying they were so excited to see this person actually like at a conference coming up soon. Uh, But once I looked into the account, I was very confused and realized the clip they were posting was not in support of this person. It was actually calling them out as a heretic. Right. And so they posted knew that. Yeah. They posted the video just with a clip of what the quote was with no commentary on it. Right. And they thought that the commentary in itself, or they thought that the quote in itself was damning enough. But it wasn't. But people were like, all right, yeah, I like what that guy's saying. Yes. <laughs> so it kind of <laughs> backfired a little bit. It did. And it was really hard to figure out what was happening and who was for whatever they were for and who was against whatever they were against. Like You couldn't really make heads or tail of it. The hint is the guys in the fedoras were against, probably. Probably. I don't remember seeing anyone in a fedora. But in the end, this was actually um, a clip that was taken from a recent panel discussion at the Gospel Coalition. We'll go ahead and link that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link the full video rather than the the tweet. tweet, Yeah, yeah, because the tweet's confusing. So we'll link the whole clip and you decide what you're going to decide. So the conversation had actually started around LGBTQ issues and Sam Albury was part of that discussion. And I'm familiar with Sam Albury just from a lot of different ministries and different ways that he's, I guess, come across, not my path personally, but just other organizations that I've been. Have you corresponded with him personally, having coordinated? Because he's he's come, so you email back and forth with him. Yeah, well, mainly the publishing company. Hmm. One of his first books was through the Good Book Publishing Company. And the ministry that I work for, we have a rep through the Good Book Company and eventually ended up having Sam Elberry on the radio program that I work at. And that was the Is God Anti-Gay? Yes. We'll link to that one in the show notes because that's a good one to have. It is. As a by the way. Yeah, and he did an interview and that was obviously my first encounter with him or knowledge of him or anything. And ever since then, I've followed him because I've I've appreciated what he has to say, especially within this conversation of LGBTQ. But that's not exactly what the clip was polling. The Woke Preacher clip took a small snippet of that discussion that was happening um, through the Gospel Coalition. And um, at some point, he had made a quote 
it was really talking about how do we reach non-believers and how do we begin that conversation of the gospel and how do we present it. And what he had said was, in earlier times, a lot of our evangelism began in Genesis 3. But really, we have to begin in Genesis 1. We don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. We live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they are worth something. And that is the quote that was just posted at the top of Woke Preacher Clips. Yeah, and people were like, wow, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. This is amazing. I can't wait to hear Sam Elberry in person. But really what was happening is this Woke Preacher Clips was trying to call out Sam Elberry for being woke. For yes, for being woke. Yeah. Yeah, and he actually was one among many in that thread because I went back and right. and looked for that thread too. And there was a bunch of them. And actually Tim Keller in a interview with Kerry oh, yeah. Newhoff that was, was below interesting... in mm-hmm. in the thread said something similar. He said, "In my parents' generation, whether they're Christians or not, the meaning of life is to be good. Today the meaning of life is to be true to yourself. I just don't think that our church today has any way of dealing with that. They certainly don't know how to answer." And so he's just kind of thinking through how the world has changed and Mm -hmm. how the message doesn't need to change, but the delivery system of that message and the way we package it perhaps does. And we haven't quite figured out how to do that well yet because we're still using old messaging when the, the mindset has changed. So what are your thoughts on is Tim Keller woke? Is Sam Elberry woke? Uh, What do you think about the criticism? Do you think that it's woke, and even if is if it's woke, is that a good thing or a bad thing, uh, to want to reemphasize maybe the goodness of humanity, the uniqueness of individuals in order to reach nonbelievers? Is that something that's wrong, or is that a legitimate recontextualization of the gospel? I always love every time you ask me questions because I have to listen as the question evolves into more questions along the way. <laughs> so... Hopefully, I answer some of the questions that you're asking me. Um, so, in regards to these two quotes, I think the issue at hand is the labeling of wokeness has become such a hostile term now. I, I, I almost hate the word now. Yes. Yeah. So just giving it that label, unfortunately, pits people against one another automatically. And they no longer want to hear what is happening in that conversation. And they no longer want to even hear the quote or who's talking about it. So unfortunately, this account, Woke Preacher Clips, is already starting off on hostile terms. So anything they're posting is obviously going to rile people up. Right, like, you know, this is not a place for nuanced conversation. No. Re, it's Twitter. Right, that's fair. And they're also clips. So it's important before we make assumptions about anything, even with this Sam Alberry clip, to go back and listen to the entire conversation that was happening. And it wasn't just Sam Alberry. It was, I think there were three people on the panel. Sam Ellerberry was one of them, and it was part of the Gospel Coalition and what they were doing. Yeah, I think it was Trevin Wax and Brett McCracken were the other two. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure who uh, 
one of them was. So there were three people part of this conversation, this ongoing conversation, which was actually centered around LGBTQ. So taking all of the context into account matters. And yeah, I agree with Sam Elberry. Like he says, hey guys, we've been always starting at Genesis 3. And maybe it's important for us to start back at Genesis 1. And Could taking, you unpack that a little bit with that? Yes. You mean so that? that's, thank you. So Genesis 3 is the fall, right? That's where sin entered into the world. That's where uh, Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. It all happened in Genesis 3, the downfall, the curse, the sin. Like we get to see the repercussions of uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. And obviously Genesis 1 and 2 are pre-fall, and we see in Genesis 1 creation, we see humanity and we see God creating the animals and the earth and separating the light from the darkness. Like we get to see all of those things happening within Genesis 1. And on the day that he created humanity, which everyone loves to call this out in their preaching, right? On the day that God created man, the day he created humanity, he said it was very good. On all the other days, he said it was good. And so this elevation of humanity over the rest of creation, this is the the crown creation of what God has done. This is his pride and his joy because it was very good. And that's a truth not just about Christians, but about humanity in general, humans, people in yes. general. Yes, that's a good clarification. And then we get to Genesis 3 where sin entered the world. And Sam Alberry is saying, what if we told non-believers and believers that God created humanity and he created it very good? What if we started the conversation there? Rather than starting the Rather conversation, than conversation with your, your wretched with sinner. You are a dirty, filthy sinner. And because of that, you are in need of salvation, which is true. But... The fact that God created humanity and made it very good is also true. And that should get some airtime. Yeah, we should should have something to say about that. We should want to say something about that. Because that is also part of the good news. God created humanity and he, he created it very good. And it was tainted by sin and it fell. And then Jesus came to redeem that. To redeem it to what? To bring it back to its fullness, to bring it back to its goodness. And the idea of redemption is is bringing it back to something. So, that's Sam Malberry. (laughs) (laughs) So, really what's being brought into question here is how we understand the gospel message and how it should be presented. Maybe not so much how we understand it, but, but more how we present it. Or is it both? I think it's how we present it is the piece that is really in conversation here. Hmm. Because I think people on both sides of this conversation would agree Genesis 1 is in the Bible and would agree that humanity is very good and would agree to all those things and say, absolutely, yes, of course. But when it comes to how they present the gospel, they want to start with, you are a sinner. Right, yeah. For those who are more reformed, I guess the the message always has to start and end with your sinfulness. It seems like, and really, the message of the gospel is framed along the lines of guilt. 
and innocence. Mm-hmm. And when most people, you know, thought in those terms, like presenting the gospel in that way made all the sense in the world. But we're living in like very shifty times right now, culturally speaking, worldview speaking. I actually think that uh, even in the Western world, in, in America in particular, we're actually moving away from a guilt-innocence framework for understanding the world and more of an honor-shame understanding of the world. And you just think about the tribalism, even the political tribalism that has mm-hmm. emerged in the last decade, where it doesn't seem like we care as much about whether something is objectively right or wrong as much as we care about that within the context of where my particular people is going, where my particular tribe is going. That's more of an honor shame. Whether you're in the group or out the group, that's really what determines morality. And kind of also wrapped up within that is this idea of identity and finding identity in something. And so when you present this guilt-innocence message, it kind of falls flat and interestingly enough, that's not the only way that the Bible presents it. And the Bible is actually written in an honor-shame culture. And so it gives a lot more different metaphors. And uh, there's certainly a different starting point than the way that we have framed the conversation. And so when our highest cultural value is belonging and identity more than innocence, it makes more sense to start with who God has created us to be right. as, as humanity. Yeah. And – why do you think there's such a fear around presenting the gospel in that way, at least for our culture? I think because even if you use different words to describe the same truth, it makes some people skittish hmm. that you're departing from the truth. And I think when we have church cultures that are built up entirely around purity of doctrine, hmm. Any deviation, not only from the theology, but from the phrasing of the theology itself, is seen as a departure from the faith itself, or a leftward drift, or whatever it might be. And so I think when you live in a culture of really fear that has been built up around trying to maintain doctrinal purity, it's not a space where you can have creativity expressed in the way that Mm. you formulate things. What do do you think? I think it goes back to the issue of people being afraid of change and afraid of the unknown. And if we build our boxes in such a way that it continues to keep people out, then we feel a little bit more comfortable because we have more control over what's happening. And if our box doesn't have sharp edges and it doesn't have set lines, then how do we determine who's in and who's out? And as people who naturally cling towards community in some way and care about community, we want to be able to define that community, especially when it comes to certain... uh, I guess, traditions that hold to doctrine being really a central focus of the church that they're part of, of how they worship, of how they interact with one another. Like, it's very clear what your doctrine is. Uh, We're all in agreement on that same form of doctrine. 
And if you shift slightly, like you said in your wording, then you're out. And that to me becomes very fear-based and very controlling because we just want to be able to keep things in our nice tidy boxes. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this debate about whether you start the conversation at Genesis 1, that humanity is created in God's image and his likeness and very good, or if you start at Genesis 3, that man is sinful and fallen and cursed, this whole debate, I actually think it's more of a history problem than it is a theology problem. Hmm. Because really when we look back, and I'm going way back to like the, the Middle Ages. Yeah. So you think about the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. We're talking, you know, kind of leading up to the 1500s. They had a lot of political power, and obviously power corrupts. And so there were a number of unjust practices that were emerging within church leadership during that time. And probably chief among those injustices was the sale of indulgences. And basically the church had sold this story that if you could afford it, you could pay down your sin for yourself, for your loved one. And so they could spend less time in purgatory and then we get to heaven faster. And of course that wasn't true. That isn't true. Uh, as Protestants, we don't hold to a theology of purgatory, but even if we did, we would say, no, that's, that's not the way it works. Probably that doesn't seem right. Uh, but because of this, the reformers, they sought to reassert the doctrines of grace, namely that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone as revealed in the scripture alone to God's glory alone. I got all the solos into one sentence there. You did. Please clap. A round of applause. So this is a period of time where the doctrine of total depravity really came into the fore, really came mm-hmm. into vogue. And what the doctrine of total depravity is, it's this idea that humanity is utterly incapable of saving ourselves, that every single part of who we are has been corrupted by sin and death. And so while we are created in the image of God, there is something fundamentally broken, fallen, cursed about us, and we cannot ascend to a place where we can reach out to God first. Which is basically what the Catholic Church is saying. Like, you can't reach out to God first if, if you have, you enough, have money. enough money. Mm-hmm. And so, as this doctrine of total depravity came into vogue, it's, it's important to a biblical anthropology. This is something that was missing during those Middle Ages. And there was a political reason why it was missing. And so, to reassert this was super important. But, total depravity isn't the sum total of a biblical anthropology. A biblical understanding of what it means to be human. And so we live in a time now where either we've become reductionistic in what the reformers understood about humanity, or maybe we need to reform the reformers 500 years later to the new context, even as we hold intention, the fallenness and sinfulness of humanity, we can reassert the goodness of humanity as a corrective in our age, even as they were reasserting the depravity of humanity as a corrective in their age. Now, when you start talking about that, people start to get a little reticent. Yeah, because if you suggest in any way, shape, or form that you disagree with total depravity as the state of humanity, then people get uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, like you're you... a Pelagian or a Socinian or something. Yeah. Some kind of Indian that you don't want to be. <laughs> right. And 
as you're talking about total depravity and the concept of how it came about and the reality that we as humans are not capable of salvation based on any of our own deeds or based on any of our own goodness or abilities, like you would agree with that piece, right? Yes. Yeah. I just don't think it's the total story. Right. Total depravity isn't a totalizing reality of what it means to be human. Of what it means to be human, but in regards to salvation, yes. In regards to salvation, yes. Yes, right. No, and I think that's just an important distinction. We're not disagreeing <laughs> with the fact that it is only through Christ and his grace that you are able to be saved. It has nothing to do with your own doing or your own goodness. Yeah, so do you think that's the main re- reason why people are reticent when they hear this kind of language and they would cry heresy at it is because... It makes them feel like the gospel is like at stake somehow. Like unless I really tell you how, what a horrible piece of human garbage you are, then how will you ever want Jesus? Yeah, because they're saying that there's absolutely no goodness within you. And in terms of salvation, I would say yes, of course. There's no way that you can come to a place of salvation on your own. It's absolutely impossible. But to then suggest that there is no good in any shape or form, I think that becomes a problem. Yeah, and I think because that also doesn't resonate with my experience of humanity. Well, your experience, and I would also say the Bible, right? Because in Genesis 1, God created humanity and it was very good. That was before, like we're not that anymore. Is the argument that you get from the other side. Right, but you would still have some piece of that within you. Because in the same way, we all don't have the revelation of Christ, right? We don't have the eyes to be able to see that truth of salvation until the Holy Spirit comes and reveals it to us. We all have this longing for it. We all have this longing for a connection with God, for a relationship with God, for something. And I think that's why you see so many different religions and you see so many people searching for this. I mean, I think there was a song like a God-shaped hole in all of us, right? Isn't it a fantastic song? (laughs) But I'm just saying there is some piece of us that knows and understands this is not the way it's supposed to be. Even though the world has never been anything else but the way that we know it, we all know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And why is that? Because humanity was once created in a place and it was very good. And we all know that even though we've never experienced it and we've never seen it because it is part of the way God created us. Yeah, I think it's Erwin McManus that calls this phantom pains of the soul. That's the word. Where if you are injured and you lose a limb, There's this phenomenon called phantom pains where you will feel physical pain in the place where that limb once was. But if you were born without that limb, you won't have phantom pains because you'll never have pain in a place where a limb never was. And so it's your body's way of remembering. And so he says, we envision a world and we fight for a world where there's no war. And yet we've never known a world where there wasn't war. We fight for a world where there's no disease, but we've never known a world where there hasn't been disease. You know, we fight for a world where there's no poverty, and yet all we've ever known 
is poverty on a global scale. And so the fact that we have these things that almost universally are put within us in our our more altruistic moments of it shouldn't be this way, uh, none of them are realities that we we have ever seen, but they're these phantom pains of what humanity was and what humanity is meant to be in the future. The only question becomes, how on earth can we get there? Because we've been trying for millennia and we've been falling on our faces because things get better, then they get worse, then they get better, then they get worse. And we've never really moved forward in a way that would give us the idea that we're ever going to be able to push this thing across the finish line. Right. And that's where... Enter Jesus. Yes, exactly. But when you said you've seen examples of it, and I can think of examples of humanity being good, even if they're not Christians. And let me clarify. For example, someone who starts an organization to no longer see children die of hunger in the world. Organizations like that exist. Is that a good thing? As far as I can tell. Yes. We should want that. We should want there to be no starving children in the world. And there are a lot of organizations out there that are not Christian-based organizations, but they feel that calling within the depths of who they are to fight for this cause of no child to go to bed hungry. And that's a good thing. So to suggest that humanity is completely and totally depraved of any ounce of goodness in any way, shape, or form, how do you explain these types of things? How do you explain organizations that are not Christian, that have not come to a saving faith in Jesus, but yet they long to care for other humans? If you're totally depraved, you don't do that. Right, yeah. There has to be some lingering goodness within us. And so I think that's a totally appropriate way to start the conversation And I don't think that means you water down your theology in any way. In fact, your theology is actually quite rich within that. And it's also important to note that as we are having this conversation about reasserting the goodness of humanity as part of our theology of what it means to be human, is that the ideas that we're having now actually are not new ideas. When you look to church history— Pre-Reformation, and particularly in the age of the patristics, the the early church fathers, say from like 100 AD to 500 AD, they talk a lot about the goodness of humanity. And there's one patristic writer in particular that I like. His name is St. Basil the Great. He's a great theologian, great on a pizza, the whole thing. Oh, no. And what's crazy about St. Basil the Great is that uh, he writes a lot about humanity. He he actually wrote a lot about uh, economic injustice. And so if you read some of his stuff that he wrote in like 300 AD, he would probably be accused today, if he was saying those things today, of being a Marxist liberal person who is using atheistic ideas and critical race theory and intersectionality to interpret the Bible to push this progressivist woke agenda. But the thing is, he's writing like a thousand years before any of those ideas were ever propagated. And he was just using his Bible to do it. So interesting that we should know history a little bit more because it'll keep us from kind of a myopic view 
of anything that is outside our own theological tradition because these ideas are much older than Karl Marx. But St. Basil the Great, he uh, wrote a number of homilies, which is uh, like a sermon. And here's a quote from one of those called On the Origin of Humanity. See how this one strikes you. He says, Do not despise the wonder that is in you. For you are small in your own reckoning, but the word will disclose that you are great. Learn well your own dignity. He did not cast forth your origin by a commandment, but there was a counsel in God to consider how to bring the divine living creature into life. That's where he's starting the conversation. Do not despise the wonder that is within you. Like that's almost like positive thinking right? kind of language that we would accuse of being very theologically weak. But this is one of the early church fathers who was there within the first generations of the church, who is a highly respected voice throughout the generations as someone who was a theologian. This is where he starts the conversation. And he's not worried about starting that conversation there because he's not living in the 1500s where there are, the idea of total depravity is, you know, in flux right now, and he's having to reassert that. Right, and he's calling into account human dignity and the fact that you have dignity as a human, even if you're not a Christian. And that's like a humanity, Christian idea too. Right. That has now, even if you're not a Christian, you might hold that view. But much of Western civilization, built on the back of Christian ideals. That's a, that's a Christian idea that humans are intrinsically valuable regardless of their state in life. Right. Yeah, so we'll link to, to that homily in the show notes. And the person who translated it into English from Greek, her name is Nona Verna Harrison, and she's a scholar in the patristics, and she's translated a number of Basil's works. She's done a lot of work in these early church fathers, And uh, she has a book called God's Many Splendored Image. And I'll read you another quote, this time from her. And in that book, she writes this. Without thinking, folks routinely identify human nature as the cause of weakness, error, ethical lapses, and as a source of all the world's trouble. How then can we still affirm our human dignity or the human dignity of others? So in other words, what she's saying is that if, quote, being human is something that's fundamentally bad— that's how I'm only human. That's how we use the phrase. On what basis can we say that we or other people have human dignity? If being human fundamentally means something bad. And the answer is we can't. Right. She's calling people out. Right. That's what she's doing. Yeah. And so the, the rest of that book kind of goes on to outline on the basis of the biblical narrative and kind of through the works of these early patristic writers that we have an entirely too negative view of what it means to be human. And Harrison, she talks about this assumption that we have that is without even thinking, that we assume being human is a bad thing. Where do you tend to see that assumption creeping up in the church or even in our own thinking? I think it's in just about every sermon that's preached. (laughs) I think that's where it creeps into the church a lot. And even within our conversations with one another, uh, we 
never want to encourage each other in our own abilities. We want to encourage people in Christ, which certainly has its place. But if you are created in the image of God and you have dignity and value because of the image you bear, then that has to mean something. And that has to mean something to ourselves and it has to mean something to the people that we talk to. I think it really creeps in as we start to kind of make excuses for situations we're in. Like, oh, I was just living in the flesh or Oh, I was, <laughs> that's because I let my flesh get the best of me. And we use these kinds of phrases as if that is apart from who we are and it only wreaks havoc in our life and it doesn't actually bring good things in our life. And that begins to, I think, devalue us to some degree. And even the giftings and the skills that, that we have been equipped with and we've been given by God because Christian or non-Christian, like you are given gifts and skills. Like that's not only a Christian thing to do. We certainly see certain gifts of the spirit, but you cannot deny the fact that non-Christians are skilled and have natural skills and natural leanings that they were born with. And that is because of the one who gave them those things. And we shouldn't be so quick to push those things aside and to assume if they're not part of the spiritual side of things, then they're not something we should give value to and they're not something we should care about. And I think that's probably why we see a negative side of creativity in the church. I think Hmm. that's also part of history, right? Obviously, you had a lot of issues with Yes, that was art. a very Reformation thing. That the Catholic yeah. Church spent a lot of people's tithe money and indulgence yeah. money on these ornate right. cathedrals and things like that. And then re- the Reformation came in, and it was just very Spartan and on purpose to be that way. Yeah. Again, that was a shift because of what was happening within the culture. But I think we then, as humanity does, right, the depravity of humanity— that's a joke, by the way. So, <laughs> But I think we went too far with those kinds of things. And now creativity is not allowed in the church. Now it's artistic and any of those sorts of things. Unless we, it's a worship night and it's the person who's doing the painting on the side. Right. No, but even your, your really, um, I think your more reformed people would not allow that in the church. Hmm. I don't imagine, therefore, that within the church. What about the ribbons or the flags? No, that's too charismatic, probably. <laughs> but I'm just saying there's no... We don't like to look to certain gifts and talents and, and skill sets that people have been given in the flesh, right? We only want to look at the spiritual things, which... Hmm. Like teaching. Yes. Mm-hmm. Teaching and giving and... <laughs> Caring for others, like those all the things, things that help make our church larger. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> but we don't want to also encourage people in other gifts and other skills that God has given them, even if they're not Christian. Yeah, I think I've seen it pop up in ways where it's like you're trying to convince me to do something that's legitimately good, like rely on God. 
work on being a more righteous, holy person. Like these are good things, but I feel like this assumption of just the pure and holistic badness of humanity gets slipped in there. And so you get told things like you, you can't trust yourself. Like that is the through line of a lot of evangelical discipleship. It's based on this assumption that you cannot trust yourself. Hmm. And so what that often leads to is like not, not trusting the, the instincts that you have when something doesn't, doesn't smell right or something doesn't feel right or something isn't jiving. And obviously we want to be informed by scriptural truth. But what's holiest and what's healthiest are often more closely related than we give credit to. Mm. And so if someone is telling me something that's quote-unquote a scriptural truth, but it feels completely off, now it might just be that I need to change my perspective, I need to understand better. But I think this kind of gaslighting, you can't trust yourself because you're a depraved, horrible wretch, is actually a protective system for whatever system of theology and whatever systems of abuse are packaged into that ecclesiology as well, whether that's an authoritarian understanding of leadership or that is covering up abuse of women or it Mm. is somehow finding a way to justify racial inequity not only within our society, but within our churches and our church's leadership. You can't trust yourself. Like, lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own emotions. Your emotions will lie to you. Your heart is wicked and sick. And so you can't listen to it even in the slightest. You can only listen to what Scripture says. And that sounds fine and good, but really what the person is saying is, you can only listen to the way that I read the Scripture Mm. and hand it to you. Even though everything that's within you as a person who's created in the image of God is kicking against it right? because there's something actually there that needs to be reckoned with. But we can use this, you're a piece of garbage, so what do you know anyways? Mm -hmm. I'm the one here standing here with the Bible. And that's how we perpetuate horrible systems of, of abuse and alongside that ineffectiveness. Yeah, and I think that's something I've just came to a point of clarity as you were talking, because that's happened to me so many times, especially when it came to how is it clear that I have some type of leadership skills outside of the church, but when it comes to being in the church, I'm not allowed to have any kind of leadership skills because I'm a woman. His ways are higher than your ways and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Yeah. And as I'm thinking, well, like the God that I know cares about me and values me and has gifted me in certain ways, how is it that most people can see that? But as soon as I step into a church, I have a certain place and that place only exists where I'm told it exists. And I've just always had so much tension with that. And again, like you said, I've thought back, well, it's because, yeah, I am a filthy, wretched, dirty sinner. And of course, I would long for things that are ungodly, like thinking that I have leadership skills, 
even though I'm a woman and, and certainly God has not given me that. And so that's constantly the tension that I've lived with and thought, well, absolutely, I want to submit to the truths of scripture and walk in line with scripture, even if those things don't quite sit right with me as I've been taught them because of what I see of the world and what I see of my experiences. But again, my experiences don't matter because I am a sinner. It's kind of a crazy vortex, right? Yeah. Like that's the trump card for you are starting to make a lot of sense and I need to shut this down. Mm-hmm. You're a dirty sinner. You just want power. You just want to have room to sin more. Right. And so we need to shut that down. Yeah. And that's all based on the assumption that you can't trust yourself. It's all based on the assumption that there's literally nothing good about you. So even my own thoughts or my own experiences that seem as if this is not the God that I know, it's not because I know God. It's because I'm a dirty sinner. Right. And on the other hand, as a salve to you can't trust yourself, I wouldn't say trust yourself blindly. Obviously, because sometimes I feel like something's true. And then upon further reflection, upon further study, upon wrestling with what does scripture say and what is actually my experience, it needs to be adjusted this way or that. Right. So don't trust yourself blindly and follow your heart or whatever. Like, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't seek to Mm -hmm. just base something off of like, is this really the truth that's within me? Or did I just have like a bad lunch that is now like (laughs) gurgling in my stomach? Obviously there's, there's a balance between that, but I just don't think the balance is don't ever trust yourself. I think you should trust yourself to an extent of following where that might lead. Right. Because God gave you a brain and he gave you wisdom and the ability to contemplate deep thoughts and work out ideas. And he gave you that unique way of doing it through your brain. And so actually using what God has given you is probably a smart thing to do. Yeah. I actually recently wrote a blog post on this very topic called Three Compelling Reasons. You got to get that SEO compelling word in there. Compelling. For Christians to focus more on the goodness of humanity. And we'll link to that in the show notes, but I just wanted to thumb note them here. And firstly, it's where our story begins and ends. Genesis Genesis and Revelation. Revelation. Yep. Fully good. Yep. Made in the image of God at the end, fully redeemed. Mm. Number two, it makes our message more compelling to non-believers, as we've discussed in this podcast where it just jibes with people's understanding of themselves. You know what? God created you on purpose with very good purpose. And there is a potential within you that you will never reach apart from him. Hmm. Yeah. And so to start the conversation there. And then the third one uh, is because of Jesus, all of the good work that we do in this life is eternally meaningful. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is first Corinthians 15, 58, where it says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So meaning that as we look to the fullness of redemption, even as we step into small microcosms of that redemption, they aren't just passing the time by, but 
all of those things are actually echoing into eternity so that there is a goodness within us that is growing, that is being refined, that is being cultivated through the Holy Spirit's work within us. And all of that is eternally meaningful. And so that is a very good that is within the community of Christians, that is unique to the community of Christians as we're leaning into that redemption. And so no one should be more team human than us. Right. And a lot of times we say that like we're being loving by constantly browbeating what it means to be human. But it doesn't really feel like love. (laughs) And yes, sin is a reality. Yes, we need saving. But there's also something within us that it almost feels heretical to say this, but I feel like it's not. There's something within us that that God sees as worth saving. Hmm. And now the super reformed people would say, there's nothing within you that's worth saving. It's all because God's glory. And that, that he gets more glory because there was nothing within you that was worth saving. I don't know. It just makes sense to me that if we're made in God's image and in his likeness, there is something that, that is within us. If he's willing to redeem us at the cost of his own son, that, there's something that's within us that he has such an affection for that he thought it was worth saving and redeeming and restoring yeah. and cultivating. And that just makes sense to me. You heretic. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know. So maybe we can afford to be a little bit less cynical about what it means to be human. And when you say I'm only human, maybe that's, that'll be a good thing. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also, be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful, devotional, and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.